Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. If it is your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. And on previous episodes of the World Wars, we have heard from veterans of Bomber Command, people like John Henry Meller, who was a flight navigator in Lancaster's. He flew above those occupied European cities in those flak-filled, dangerous firefights. So we've heard what it was like in these planes. But in this episode, we're going to focus into one of the most famous Lancaster bomber missions, the Dambusters Raid, Operation Chastise, in May 1943. It was here that 19 Lancasters, under the command of Guy Gibson, flew at low level over occupied Europe to strike the dams in the German industrialised Ruhr Valley. Now, eight of these aircraft would be shot down, 53 of the men on board, drawn from all over the Commonwealth, would be killed, and three taken prisoner. But of course, they achieved their ultimate mission goal. They breached one of the dams, and they damaged two of them, and they flooded that whole industrial region. To find out more, Dan was joined by the historian Paul Beaver, He was also joined by the Secretary of State for Defence and Wing Commander John Butcher, who's the current Wing Commander of today's 617 Squadron. And they came together to mark the 75th anniversary of the Dambusters raid. This is a fascinating episode, so enjoy. And if you like the episode, then subscribe to The World Wars on wherever you get your podcasts and follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory. But here's the fascinating history of the Dambusters. Paul Beaver, welcome back to the podcast. You're such a pro now, you've been on so many times, you could host it, for goodness sakes. Um, talk, talk to me about what was going on 75 years ago in the early hours of this morning. It really was quite a remarkable time 75 years ago, because... It was a full moon, so the Germans were not expecting any activity. And we had a squadron of Lancasters going at ultra-low level. I mean, lower than anybody would normally reasonably want to fly. I mean, health and safety hadn't been invented, but they were at 100 feet going across Germany. Sadly, three of them didn't uh, didn't make it uh, that far. Eventually, eight aircraft were shot down. But the aircraft that did actually get there achieved the most remarkable single operation the RAF has ever flown, and that is attacking the dams with bouncing bombs. They're not 
bombs, of course, they're really aerial mines, but that's getting a bit technical. So the key to it was actually achieving uh, a huge amount of surprise and actually doing the job as planned by that great engineer, uh, Dr. Um, Barnes Wallace, just an amazing guy. Why bother with the dams on the Ruhr? Really interesting, isn't it? Why, 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 you know, what is destroying a couple of dams actually going to do? And the answer is quite a lot. Um, and you have to look at it from, from every angle. So if you look at it from the geostrategic point of view, the, the big picture, the Russians sat up and said, wow, they can do this at, at range with a big weapon. The Americans went, we couldn't do that. Churchill was in Washington and was able to brag about it big time. Really important for, for cohesion in the war effort. Then you look at it at the sort of the next level down. What did it do to Germany? It really surprised them and really upset them because this was a blow to national pride. You know, and no German air, no uh, enemy aircraft will fly over Germany type, type thing. And there they are. They take these targets out um, and they take them out. Okay, 40% losses, that's really high. But actually, the effect was so good. So let's look at that effect in terms of operational. In operational terms, what did it do? Well, it destroyed every bridge for 45 miles, most houses and buildings for about 20 miles. Yes, there's a human cost. About 1,300 people died. In war, there's always human cost. But it also stopped production at about 14 coal mines, it stopped about a quarter of a million tonnes of coking coal being produced for the Ruhr industries. And that was the whole point. So back in 1937, it was an option to attack these dams, but there wasn't a weapon. And it was Barnes-Wallace who came up with the weapon. This is why he's so crucial to our story. And, and they did all of that, and they managed to destroy it. And then, of course, they had to do something about it um, after it had been attacked, because you couldn't just leave a gaping hole in, in some dams. You needed that water for the Ruhr's industry. Let's, let's, you, men, you mentioned Barnes-Wallace there. Let's go back and talk about him. He, the, what's so remarkable about this operation is how quickly it all came together. I mean, what, give me a sense of the timeline from the decision to go for it to the development of, the, of this, this bomb and the changing, you know, adjusting the aircraft and training the crews. It really was quite a remarkable operation. I mean, in the, in, back in the, the late winter of, um, of 1942, um, we needed to do something. It was a really bad time. Uh, Britain was, was reeling from the loss of Singapore, of loss of Tobruk, being pushed back in the desert by the Japanese. Everywhere there seemed to be uh, problems. And so to a certain extent, there needed to be a spectacular but also there needed to be something that would actually shorten the war because Britain was bleeding and, and, it, and it couldn't sustain it. So what you have, independently of anybody, is Barnes-Wallace sitting at home, and it was mainly at home, and he's thinking, I could do something here. I could shift those dams. I can use the force of water. If I do the, the maths correctly... I can make the dams break up and I can make the water flow and I can make it do all this damage. Bombs don't have to do the damage. Nature will do the damage. And he put this idea together and it got pushed back and pushed back until eventually it went as high as the chief of the air staff and the prime minister, Sir Winston Churchill, then Winston Churchill, who said, it's going to happen. So Bomber Harris, who was the arch enemy of the whole thing because he called it panacea mongers, you know, What's better than dehousing as, or destroying every house in Germany? That was his aim, flatten Germany. Barnes-Wallace is a bit more humane 
than that. It came together quite quickly, but then you have to maintain the security. And you have to find the crews. Now, everyone goes on, oh, these are the best crews in Bomber Command. Yes, some of them were, but some of them were brand new, straight out of um, operational conversion unit. What was so good was this, this other character who's central to our story, and that's Guy Gibson, a 24-year-old who molded these people together and created a team really quite unlike any other squadron. Squadron X, it was called originally, didn't even have a number. They didn't even know what bomb they were going to use, a big one, a small one, a round one, a barrel-shaped one. It took all of that work and all of the, I suppose, the enthusiasm of Barnes-Wallace. He was not going to let anyone say no. And so how, how soon after Guy Gibson formed this Squadron X did they find themselves flying through the low level across occupied Europe? Well, days in, in effect. I mean, the, 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 they didn't have the aircraft at the, at the beginning. They had to be borrowing aircraft from other squadrons. That caused a lot of ripples in, in number five group because they were on ops every night. They were suffering seven, eight, um, sometimes 12% losses. So they were, they were hurting. And people were coming and nicking their best aeroplanes to go low-level flying and coming back with damage from flying so low. Eventually, they got their aircraft, thanks to Vickers and thanks to, uh, to Farnborough, the Royal Aircraft Establishment, and they were able to start practising with the real aircraft. But, you know, 60 feet, 220 miles an hour, is no mean feat in the dark. And we should say, what's the wingspan of the Lancaster? 103 feet. So you imagine you don't have a lot of error there as the pilot. So, you know, and daylight, it's bloody risky. Uh, at night, it's almost suicidal. And you do that on the run to the dams, but getting to the dams, you have to be at 100 feet. Well, 100 feet, you're going to have that choice. Do I go over or under the pylon lines? What do I do? You know, and I'm going around, they were navigating at low level. Everybody in the crew had played a, a part. That's why they needed the seven-man crew, the bomb aimer, the navigator, the engineer. The wireless operator was, was doing his job as well, listening out for weather, for example, and the gunners, of course, looking out for, for the enemy. Everybody was doing their job. And so to look at it in that regard, you, you just have to look at this as a, mainly a citizen air force. I mean, Guy Gibson was a, was a regular, but a lot of those people had been called up what an amazing feat of training. You know, it just, to me, it, it still sa- sends a shiver down my back to think about that. I've flown low level, uh, and I know what it's like. I've flown it at night as well. But I was in a helicopter. So much easier. And, of course, they were drawn from all over the Allied nations. Well, drawn all over the Commonwealth. I mean, Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians. I mean, you had some great characters there. Um, and, of course, you know, we, 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 we always remember McCarthy, big Joe McCarthy, um, who'd been a New Jersey beach um, lifeguard and wanted to do something and joined the Canadian Air Force and lied about being a Canadian and eventually actually became a Canadian and commanded a Canadian Air Force base. But um, you know, amazing characters. Do you know so many of them were characters? Some of them were from uh, public schools with uh, Oxbridge, with you know, rowing blues. They were an amazing bunch of people. Others were just Australian New Zealand sheep boys. And you, know, and, and you put them all together. And, and again, I go back to Guy Gibson. You imagine putting that together. Lesson in leadership. How do you do it? Um, it's carrot and stick. Quite a lot of stick, but also some big carrots. Um, and he, he sacked some crews. But actually, you know, at the end of the day, it all worked, didn't it? Talking of big carrots, talk to me about the attack 
on the dam led by Guy Gibson himself. Just give me a little, just tell everyone at home just a little sense of just how extraordinary that, that final bombing run was. What I think is remarkable, and the reason that Guy Gibson uh, was awarded a Victoria Cross, the highest British gallantry award, is the way in which he led that. So he formed his aircraft up. He had um, hit five aircraft, six aircraft um, up over the dam. And there was flak, more flak, I think, than they expected, more anti-aircraft fire than they expected. Um, he did his first run in and realised that uh, actually... Though he dropped the bomb and it was successful, it hit the dam, it didn't, wasn't enough, it was, it was going to take more. He realised very quickly that what you really needed to do was to draw the flak off and allow the bombing aircraft at 60 feet, at 220 miles an hour, to actually concentrate on, on dropping the weapon properly because the two bombs after him actually didn't work properly. Both skipped over, one destroyed uh, Hopgood's aircraft, uh, the other um, went over and... and detonated. But the, the key to this was that Guy Gibson then put himself in jeopardy several times, flew again and again with the aircraft bombing to draw their fire with his lights on, all his lights on, every light he could put on, navigation lights, landing lights, uh, everything, so that the German gunners would, be, uh, would, would go for him uh, rather than going for the bombing aircraft. Now that to me is, is real courage. And then, of course, they had to go for the Ada Dam, which is even worse. It, it's, it's a really difficult dam. I've, I've flown both of the dams, and, and I know you have as well. They're, they're really narrow, and, and getting a big bomber, you know, we go back to this, how big the bomber was, uh, and getting it down on, on, onto um, water where your altimeter isn't going to work, having to use these spotlights, having your flight engineer calling off uh, for you and your navigator calling off the heights, Really, really, really great stuff. And that's why this is epic. That's why we are celebrating 75 years of extraordinary gallantry, leadership, and doing a job that really was necessary. And I suppose we're, we're commemorating it because of the way it was targeted. Uh, we wouldn't be here celebrating the firebombing of Dresden, for example, which was required bravery and, and skills by the pilots. And, and the air crew, because in retrospect, we're slightly ashamed, I think, of that policy of just destroying cities entirely. The point about this operation was, although people tragically were killed on the ground, we, we are, uh, the, the Royal Air Force was trying to minimise those casualties and trying to strike high-value targets very, very precisely. Yes, it was all about um, striking um, uh, what today we would call a precision effect at range. So it was at the, the, the ultimate range of, of, of the Lancaster with a very big weapon, more than six tonnes of explosive in, in, in the weapon. Um, and and to, to hit that very small target, I mean, we're talking of what, 200 feet of, of dam uh, expanse. I have to say big dam, the Mona Dam is bigger than the Hoover or any of the American dams. It's a, it's a big dam still difficult to get at because the lake is curved, the Monazay, you have to fly around uh, the lake in, into a corner. Um, to me, it's sad we didn't do more, although 617, of course, went on to hit key targets of launch, rocket launch sites, the Biederfeld viaduct, uh, the U-boat pens, um, and it was joined eventually by Number 9 Squadron doing the same job, also with modified Lancasters, to carry the big tall boy Grand Slam bombs, which incidentally, came from Barnes-Wallace's drawing board again. I mean, this, this is the thing. that we, I think we could have done more. The, the problem was um, that the perceived wisdom was flatten Germany. And I, like you, um, I like to re-examine history, not to tear it down, but to just, just take 
and draw lessons from it. Could we have drawn lessons from that? I think we could. Today, the Royal Air Force are the masters of long-range precision attack. Look at Operation LME against um, uh, Libya, going from Royal Air Force Marham all the way down, delivering effect at the southern part of Libya, right in the, in the Sahara Desert, and flying back again. Now, that's the sort of thing that the dam busters started. A pity we didn't follow it up. Paul, thank you very much. Uh, your book on the RAF is coming out. It is indeed. It's coming out for the 10th of July um, for the big celebrations in London, 100 aircraft flying down the mall, um, which is going to be an amazing day. I'm lucky enough to be invited to Westminster Abbey um, to celebrate it and to commemorate it. Uh, 100 years of the Royal Air Force, the world's first major independent air force. And you don't know this yet, but you're coming on a podcast to talk about that and your book as well. So look forward to having you on there. Thank you very much, Dan. Right. Having heard from Paul Beaver, let's take it to RF Coningsby, where I was lucky enough to meet the British Secretary of State for Defence. Gavin Williamson. Secretary of State, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It, this must be exciting. This is incredibly exciting. I have never been uh, to see uh, the Lancaster Bomber in, uh, in the flesh, to see it actually here, just to, the whole history of it, just to think of what it did, what an important role it played. And it just it's a very humbling experience because it makes you realise the sacrifice that so many people made just to keep this country safe. So let's, let's, uh, let's walk and have a little uh, look at it. You have got the best stuff of all of your government colleagues. I have have the best job, actually, Dan. I mean, it it is without a doubt. It's not just the stuff, but it's actually I have the best people um, in government because you have amazing people who are quite literally willing to give everything in order to the defence and the safety of Britain. And you're always struck by just what what they can do, the can-do attitude, but then you realise it you're there to look after that and preserve it for the future and that capability for the future as well. When you're sitting at your desk down there in London, do you think about the history? Do you think about the past? Because, you, you know, again, like no other government department, you've got such a remarkable heritage. Well, I think it's actually... You shouldn't be so bound in by the past but because everything... If you think of the RAF, 100 years of the RAF, how much it's evolved in those 100 years. Um, but the past sort of gives the grain to the services it gives a sense of their where they've come from and the sense of belonging that's created in the services so i think it's a really important thing to preserve but actually when you speak to whether it's uh, uh pilots or uh, air crew in the royal air force uh whether it's those people serving the royal navy or the army actually what they're equally so excited about is the future and you know you think about the f-35 uh the new lightning aircraft that are going to be coming actually you speak to every pilot every pilot wants to get in one they want to fly one they want to see what the capabilities are but then they have an immense reverence uh for for what's gone before them and the amazing feats that people have done in those past generations and and that's a wonderful combination because you want to be excited about the future as against uh just looking at the past because you want to be making your new histories it must be very hard for you looking ahead at the future, the challenges that Britain faces, what, what kit to invest in. I mean, it must. I mean, how, do you stay, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> well, well I, I'm always really lucky that I've got amazing people to advise me. So if John tells me to go and get uh, something for the F-35, I'll just do what John says, you see. So, so uh, you have amazing people. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm not there 
to try and be, um, I'm not there to be a general and admiral and air marshal. I'm there to be uh, the politician that is their voice around the cabinet table and tries to get what we need in order for them to do the amazing job that they're doing. So, uh, uh, John will be delighted to hear that I don't do actually the organisation of the strikes that he'll be asked to do, but uh, but I'm there to be responsible for it. So we're standing underneath one of the greatest British bits of engineering of all time. Do you think time. we should take it out to fly? Uh, I, I, I think this is what we... I, I mean, I have no experience. I don't know about we got, you. We've got, we got John here. We'll be all right. <laughs> so we, we got, we're standing... It, it, is, it is obviously extraordinary in terms of its development, in terms of the way it was deployed. What are the, what are the lessons that you, as a, as a politician, can draw from 75 years ago? When we sort of think about that, whether it's the Dam Busters raid, whether it's uh, everything that we did in the Second World War, it's actually innovation that is the key and it's the constant use of technology. Obviously, in times of war, the innovation moves so much faster, but actually, as an armed forces, we've got to get better at taking technology and how it's evolving quicker to make sure that it's given to John and everyone else uh, who is serving in the armed forces to make sure that they have the advantage and they have the competitive advantage uh, over our adversaries. And it's how you can use that more, how you can bring it to, how you can bring it into service a lot quicker. Because one of the things I think that we've always had a weakness in the armed forces is sometimes programs and sort of delivery of new aircraft just take too long. And we probably just have to start looking at things in a different way, how we can bring technology faster and actually how we move on with technology much quicker. Well, this aircraft was developed for the Dam Busters raid and the upkeep bomb in a space of a few months. So, I mean... Well, well, this, is, this is the challenge. I'm going to go to BAE Systems and say, you know, how they can sort of uh, meet that. But actually... Defence isn't just about those people who are serving in the services. I mean, there's a quarter of a million jobs that are tied up in the defence industries, either supporting, uh, you know, UK armed forces or in terms of exports. So it does affect an awful lot of people's lives. And again, it's that technology, it's that innovation. This was the absolute cutting edge of technology 75 years ago. Um, in another 75 years, they'll look at the, uh, the F-35 and they'll look at the Typhoon and think you know, lovely, amazing, but sort of almost quite quaint and how, you know, how that technology has moved on from there. And it's just looking at how you can seize those that moment as quickly as possible. Uh, this last question, because you've got lots of people want to talk to you. Do you feel you're in the room now where history is being made? Do you, f- do you does that feel momentous? Do you worry about how the how the future will judge the decisions you're making? Uh, absolutely. So, when I think about when we had the recent strike in terms of Syria following for chemical weapons, you just really worry because you know um, you're asking people to do something which means that they might not return. And if you don't worry about that and if you don't get concerned and if it doesn't play on your mind, I don't think you're taking your job seriously. What's really interesting, and I had some of the guys come, uh, had a chat with them, so focused on the operation and the pride that they take in it and the professionalism that they do it, it it makes you realise that you are looking after something incredibly precious, but you equally know that they do everything they can do to minimise the risk and they're just the best people, best Air Force in the world and our job is to give them the best equipment to do the very best job. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. So nice to meet you. That was meant to be the end of our interview but as you'll hear, Gavin Williamson had different ideas and what followed was rather unexpected. certainly caught the RAF organisers by surprise. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are we loud in it? Well, let's ask the station uh, commander. Here we go. Um, oh, sorry. Are we loud to go in it? Should we? You're the boss. Come, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Have you, have you been in? Yeah. Sorry, I mean, so there's no, is... there's, there is no point in being Secretary of State for Defence if you don't... Well, that's right. Now, uh, you'll discover, luckily, you're a very fit Secretary of Defence because they are ext- famously difficult aircraft to get round. Can I just, just be oh. careful on your head there? Yes. OK, you can touch the yellow handrails on the left yes. and you're on a, a walkway. Don't step off the walkway or you'll probably go to the bottom of the aeroplane. So, okay. walkway and... Um, yeah. Watch your head. Are you coming in? I'll, I'll follow you in, yeah. I'll follow you in as well. Brilliant. And then the wing strut is an absolute nightmare on these. Really? Here we go. So, so you can imagine if you're in here with a young man, a 20-year-old from New Zealand or maybe a 19-year-old from Wales, in all of your kit at night... Uh, ex- exceptionally cold, four, minus 40 degrees in this aircraft. You're covered in ammunition and fuel, so an intensely dangerous machine to be in. If you want to sit on that spar, Minister, and then swing your legs over, or if you can put your legs in first, it's quite awkward, and watch your head as you keep going up there. He's straight over, listeners. He's yeah. just straight over. The man has been doing his Pilates. Uh, well, uh, I, I wouldn't go... This isn't, Dan, isn't this just such an amazing... Um, if you imagine, you know, seven-man crew in here, um, often they would do a thousand bomber raids. Exceptionally cold and an exceptionally dangerous place to be. In here for seven or eight hours while people try and kill you. And doing it night after night, really, really brave men. I mean, doesn't it just make you... You just sort of think of a history and actually, as you say, the bravery of people and actually, you know, just... You, the fear that they must have actually sometimes felt well, doing... Absolutely. I mean, they would have seen aeroplanes exploding. They were flying along huge formations, no air traffic control, night fighters trying to kill them, you know, extre- exceptionally dangerous. Young man here, not only the captain, but also a leader. So he's, he could be from New South Wales, he could be from Scotland. And how old might he pretty have been? 
18, 19, 20? And Kids. such a responsibility. We, we take so much for granted, don't we? Do. we? Uh, you just don't realise for the sacrifice that sort of people sort of took and actually the sort of kind of such young age and there they were. And they're all like a... this. They're all like this. And then for them, it was just a job. They're so humble. And what they did was absolutely remarkable. But night after night as well. And then you look at the size of the aeroplane. The Dambusters flew this at 60 feet. Now, I've yeah. flown Jaguars at 250 feet at night with night vision goggles, with a moving map, and that is dangerous. Yeah. Flying a bomber aeroplane at those heights astonishing feat of flying. Yeah. Absolutely amazing what they did. Because it was the rear gunners who were the most vulnerable, wasn't Absolutely. it? And they were the ones who usually got taken with really high attrition rates. Yeah, exactly. A, because it's freezing cold back there. So um, my grandfather flew these aeroplanes. His, his first rear gunner had to leave the Air Force for frostbite in his fingers. Oh. We're being dragged yeah. out. Oh, what a pity. Okay. What a pity. Don't, don't blame me. Yeah. <laughs> But you're absolutely right, the rear gunner, was, he was a lookout man. If you fired, actually you risked highlighting your position so often crews wouldn't, wouldn't fire because the tracer would show where they were. Yeah. And you wanted to be keep you know, yourself as hidden yeah, away. Hope or go after another guy. Like, um... Yeah, but often they would be the first guy to see the night fighter. And then they'd call a corkscrew where the pilot would put the aeroplane into a, into a diving left or right-hand turn. So you imagine this aeroplane, you know, all of a sudden you're at 3 or 4G pinned to the side of the aircraft. It would have been terrifying. Well, I was going to say, I mean, they're not sort of small, delicate no, things. No. Um, but were they reasonably agile? Uh, for a big aeroplane, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, they would really chuck them around. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's a large aircraft, but it handles in many ways like a fighter. It's an absolutely superb machine. And it would come home. You'd pull the wings off it, and it would bring you home time after time. That's why it was such a popular aeroplane with the crews, because they had utter, utter faith in this aircraft. It was just reliable and solid yeah, and absolutely. just did the job. Yeah, they loved it to bits. And they still do. When they come back, they absolutely love it to bits. There's something so beautiful when you actually sort of see them see in the air. And yeah. it's just like brings out the emotion it just well as i say just a living piece of history and i imagine they sort of almost felt like living organisms absolutely i mean she's called she you know she's treated as a girl the boys yeah. love her there's a real affection for it um, but you know it's it's the best of british this machine because we've got rolls-royce merlin engines of course rolls-royce are you know arguably the best manufacturer of engines in the world and it's you know, entirely designed by the british made in britain and it really is, you know, it highlights what a great country we I'm, are. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever been to crew, you know, the Bentley Works, where yep. they used to make the engines, and you've just got this most beautiful Merlin engine sat at the entrance, and they say say that this is just to remind you where actually the sort of roots of a factory were yeah, and, yeah. and the, the important role yeah. it played in the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. And you just see that engine, and you just... The, the engineering, the quality, it just... Everything just inspires Absolutely. you. And you just want to take kids to go and see yep. the engine and yep. sort of see, um, you know, what an inspiration it can be. I, 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 you just need to do more yeah, of it, absolutely. don't we? Absolutely. Are, are, are we... Now I'm just walking back down through the aircraft where this, I'm, we're in trouble because the Secretary of State is now behind schedule because he of his enthusiasm for this aircraft. <laughs> The stress and the pressure there must have been under. Look at this, this is all ammunition. Obviously it's not live now, but this would, I mean, if you tap the, tap the wall of the aeroplane, that wouldn't stop a shotgun round. So once this is on fire, you know, you are in serious trouble. Yeah. Watch your head as you come back. I certainly will do. Well, I have to say, Dan, I really do like all the programs you do. But one thing I always think you, uh, and this sounds incredibly boring and dull, you can always tell politicians when they have what they think is a good programme idea. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I always think you should do a programme on, you know, like the history of the... Next up, I heard from John Butcher, a.k.a. Butch. He's the current commander of 617 Squadron. 
Wing Commander John Butcher. Butch, I understand you. Hello, Dan. <laughs> no, Naz. We're standing under the Lancaster now. Secretary of State has finally left. He's like a kid in a candy store. But you know, actually, no, he's over there looking at Spitfires now. But we, what, what, tell me about the job this aircraft did. And how similar is it to the job that you're going to be doing in your F-35 when it, when it goes into service? So the Lancaster's main role was, uh, was bombing during the Second World War. And that's what it was designed to do. Uh, and it did very well. Uh, and it, was, it progressed through, through the war and changed technology. And by the time that the 617 Squadron did its Stambusters raid in 1943, it was at the very cutting edge of technology using that, uh, using those capabilities. Compare it to today, uh, I'm standing here next to it and looking at when I walked to an F-35 and it's a crew of one compared to a crew of seven with a much smaller uh, bomb bay, or weapons bay, as we would call it in the F-35. And uh, we're now able to be uh, far more precise than they were able to be. It's such a step change. Because that's, that's the key difference, isn't it? That this had to have a big bomb load because it couldn't be sure it was actually going to hit the things it wanted to hit. That's right. The targeting was quite difficult and they were using free fall weapons uh, to, hit, to try and hit those targets. Uh, whereas today we can be very precise using uh, GPS or laser guided uh, weapons. And uh, that really is a, a giant leap. So in the Second World War, it's thought 8 or 9% of the bombs hit their target. And even by hitting target, I think that meant sort of land somewhere quite near their target. Today, are you amazed if... A weapon is something going wrong if if it's not one hundred percent. Yeah, we always aim to be as precise as we possibly can, and uh, that is our expectation with all of our weaponeering that that we hit the target. Now, your grandfather flew one of these. Uh, what? Tell me about his service. Yeah, so uh, a very inspiring story for me personally that uh, he was a, a pilot on twelve and six two six squadron uh, based up at RAF Wickenby. Uh, and he flew operationally in 1943 and 1944, uh, did his uh, 30 missions uh, with his crew, amazingly managed to survive uh, through that, and then went on to be an instructor on the uh, Lancaster training unit. I'm not surprised. Sounds like he had the, what, what, what it took. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he and I uh, spent many hours uh, when I was, when I was young, much younger uh, talking about his service history, and it really inspired me to get involved. I loved the stories of what it felt like to be in the Royal Air Force, to be with that crew. Uh, and obviously I was too young really to, to comprehend the danger and the threat that they were in at the time, something that I've learned you know, uh, you know, over later years. Uh, but he personally uh, is a big inspiration for me as to what I do today. And you were lucky enough to know him into your adult life. And in fact, I think, you know, you, you, you were on, he saw you go on deployment with the RAF yourself. He did, yeah. He died uh, just over, well, about 10 years ago now. And I was on operations uh, in Afghanistan flying the Harrier. So he saw me progress into, he was there when I got, the day I got my wings, the day I, the day I commissioned into the Royal Air Force. Uh, so he was there at those important milestones for me personally. And uh, I know that was important to him and it was certainly very important to me. And what, by that stage, you'd moved on from sort of anecdotes and things of your childhood, like I remember with my grandfather. I mean, did, was he able to sort of talk about, you know, flying real stuff by that stage? Or was it always difficult for, for him to talk about those kind of things with you as his grandson? From my perspective, he was always very open and honest. And he was able to give me the details when I asked the specific questions. And we were also very fortunate that he came to one of my flying stations and actually gave a presentation on what he had done uh, during his service career. And so, yeah, I think he was very comfortable talking about it. I think he understood that it was important to talk about what had happened and you know, the experiences that he and his crew went through in, in delivering uh, bombs during the Second World War. What things that as a child you might not have appreciated, but as a pilot you really listened to your grandpa and went, well, that is, that's useful advice. Well, uh, from a flying perspective, uh, he always used to say, you know, keep your head on a swivel. Uh, 
the, the rest of it was just you know sort of fly safe i think that sort of grand grandfather looking at his grandson probably thinking oh crikey have i given him too much inspiration to go and do a job that's slightly dangerous uh, but yeah he was he was always very supportive and that, that's what i remember and so he was remarkable in in surviving uh, all of those raids. Did did he did he have great affection for this aircraft? I mean, did he did he think this aircraft was a big part of that that reason for his survival and that success? I think he probably did. There were a lot of pictures up in his house of the Lancaster. I remember him having a an audio tape of the Merlin engines, which he just used to occasionally play. I think just to, just to hear the the hum of the of the the uh, sound of the engines going. Uh, so I think he does put it down to you know the technology. He had a couple of hairy nights where that his aircraft had taken some pretty serious damage, and uh, she still got him and his crew home. And I think that is where that real affinity sits with him. And he was how old during the war, approximately? Uh, he was in his very early twenties. Terrifying, much younger than us. Yeah, amazing how how those young men went into got climbed into one of these every night uh, to go and do that uh, in in the, in the face of such terror. It's not just the equipment that's inspiring, I suppose. It must be the people as well, your grandfather, but also Guy Gibson, legendary Victoria Cross, when a legendary, well, the first man to have your job, Officer Commanding 617 Squadron. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge privilege to be, to be in the position that I'm in, uh, you know, big boots to fill. And uh, I do think, though, that if uh, I had the opportunity to take Guy Gibson around 617 Squadron today, I think he would, hope, I hope he would recognise the same spirit and determination that he managed to instil in his people 75 years ago. And I certainly draw on that a lot with my people, you know, to remember what it is that they did in a very short space of time with absolute cutting-edge technology at the time as well and try to bring those synergies to where we are today. Yeah, so when you look back at Guy Gibson's generation, what, what are the lessons, what are the, the attributes that you are trying to channel? Well, it's being comfortable with operating cutting-edge technology, I think, is, is a very important part of what 617 Squadron is now about. You know, we really are at the cutting edge with F-35, and that is important for us to remember as a whole team within 617. But then there's the element of, you know, he took a squadron in, on the 23rd of March, 1943, and had them operationally flying by the 16th of May. And I have a lot longer, thankfully. Uh, and, but the skill sets that we need to be able to do with F-35 are, are much broader and uh, so I, I really try and bring that spirit of determination out in people that uh, we, we need to be ready to do all of these mission sets uh, and we need to be able to do it from land or from sea. And so readiness uh, through the spirit and determination that I really believe that he had in 1943 with his team, I think is, is where that really sits. And now talk to me more about your, your plans this summer. Very exciting. F-35, which is Britain's latest uh, strike platform but well tell me about f-35 i mean is it is it the dream is it basically a combination of the lancaster we're standing on now and the spitfires we're looking at the room a combination of bomber and and fighter interceptor it is absolutely uh, a combination of those two uh, and it's a it's a it's a leap on top of that and why i would say that is f-35 it, it's it's stealthy we are able to evade radar when you look at the Dambusters raid they had to fly low to make sure that they weren't detected going in well we can we can still fly at normal altitudes now and we're undetected we can drop bombs we can fire missiles uh, we have the ability to uh, really listen to what's going on out in the in the battle space around us with all of the sensors that the f-35 has and it displays it to us in a way that is very understandable for us to be able to understand what's going on around us and make good decisions in, in, uh, in quite, quite tense scenarios. You're, at the moment you're in the US, and so what's the plan this summer? So we're going to be bringing the jets back, uh, and we should have all of the jets back from Beaufort in South Carolina by the end of the summer to our future home of Royal Air Force Marham. 
Brilliant. Not quite in Lincolnshire, but nearby. Near, near enough. <laughs> near enough. Near enough to Bomber County. Um, thanks very much, Butch. Uh, and, and I hope to see you uh, as, as the year goes on and perhaps on the carrier as well, because your aircraft, unlike these Lancasters, will be able to deploy from, from land airfields, but also from, from uh, the Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, that's right. And that's an, another added uh, facet to, to the technology that we've got with F-35. It gives us the ability to do all of those missions that I just talked about and be able to do that from the land or from the sea. Uh, and that really gives us a lot of oper- you know, operational options. How soon before... This is a brutal question to ask you. It's like someone asking me when AI can do TV presenting. How soon before we are looking, do you think, at unmanned strike aircraft? Or will there always be a job people like you in that cockpit? Well, already we use unmanned air vehicles to do strikes. Obviously, there are still people in the loop operating and making the decisions. I have no idea how close we are to having completely autonomous solutions. I'm sorry. Let's hope it's uh, long enough for you to enjoy a long and happy career in the RAF. (laughs) Pull up the ladder behind you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.